Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. I'm Doug Taylor. It is Sunday, November 28th. And we are going to start tonight on Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 10. And that verse reads, It's like a magical charm on the lips of a king. In justice, his lips will not deceive him. It's like a magical charm on the lips of a king. In justice, his lips will not deceive him. So, as we generally do, let's start with what are the questions around that particular verse? Okay, Linda, thanks. What's a magical charm? I mean, that's, a, that's really... Uh, Kind of an odd term for King Solomon to use in the context of Torah. So what is he talking about there? What's a magical charm on the lips of a king? And why does he use that term altogether? And, and in the second half, he starts out and he says, Injustice, his lips will not deceive him. Well, what does injustice mean? And... In the last part of it, it says his lips will not deceive him. So we got two different pronouns there. And a question I would have is, who is each of the pronouns referring to? Whose lips and who's the one not being deceived? And yeah, Linda, what, what does lips have to do with all this anyway? So let's think about a king. What do kings do? They rule. And in a kingdom, the king has absolute rule. In, in North America, we're not particularly used to exactly uh, that way of thinking because uh, in the United States, we operate as a republic, not a dictatorship. But when you have a king who has absolute power, they can essentially do whatever they want, and people fear the king. So people want to be in the king's good graces. You know, it's not a good idea to get on the bad side of a person with absolute power. So because of that, the king is in a situation where he can get more information about a situation than virtually anyone else. People are eager to provide information for him. By the way, this is a, an interpretation of uh, Rabbi Moskowitz. So, the, the king is able to get information from a lot of people. And even people who might argue about something in a court situation, in a kingdom where there's a king, they may be afraid to lie or hide information from a king because the king has absolute power over them, including the power of life and death. I mean, he can say, you know, you're out of here and you're out. So the king is in the best position to get information about a situation. And he can get to that truth essentially better than anybody else, okay? And, Laurie and Terry, you've mentioned your translation is, in judgment his mouth will not deceive, okay? And uh, 
that's very similar to the translation that uh, that I'm operating from, other than that there is a will not deceive him uh, at the tail end. And I think we'll get to the answer of, of what that's referring to. So here's the king. He's able to get information from everybody, and he can get to the truth of a situation. So the probability of the king coming to a just conclusion is the greatest because he has more information about the situation. So when it says that his lips will not deceive him in justice, okay, or, and I would say it's similar to uh, Laurie and Terry, the translation that you uh, suggested there, it's telling us that he'll be able to reach a just conclusion to the matter at hand. Okay, because he's got more information, he learns about the various aspects of the situation, and he can uh, identify, okay, what's a just conclusion to this matter? Now, that's assuming we're talking about a king operating with justice. So, then we would ask, well, why does it say then that it's like a magical charm? And Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say, uh, because it looks like magic to the people when the king speaks. In other words, because he has more information and he's able to reach a just and wise conclusion on a matter, it looks like the king's lips have like a magical charm. I mean, people look at him and say, wow, you know, how does he you know, understand how to reach such a just conclusion? So his words seem magical because they are so truthful. And people can recognize uh, that kind of truth. Uh, you may recall when King Solomon first took the throne, and there was the famous story of the two women who came arguing over which baby it was, and you know King Solomon uh, gave a... a, a, a a just answer to the question, uh, or was able to ferret out the real truth. People were in awe of that justice uh, and and that uh, wisdom that he had, and the word of that traveled, uh, you know, very widely. So when a person is able to do that, it's his words seem magical. Now this verse is also telling us about leaders in general. I mean, people want to satisfy a king, that's true. They generally want to satisfy whoever is in charge. So a leader is in a position to get to the truth better than anyone else because he can generally get more information, more viewpoints, uh, and be able to make a wise decision based on the wholeness of the situation and all aspects of it. The Malbum commented on this verse that whatever is said by a king, even if it is just superficial talk, is regarded as magic or wizardry. People give great deference to someone in a high position. So the Malbum said that a king must speak clearly and truly. And I would expand on that to say that when a person is in a high position, he needs to recognize 
that people tend to hang on his every word. So he has to be very, very, very careful in what he says. He has to use his speech very, very wisely, even in things that don't appear to be very important, because someone could hear what's being said and draw conclusions based on it. And we see this in the news, you know, from time to time when some person, uh, you know, of notoriety is somehow recorded supposedly off microphone saying something that they thought was nothing or they were, you know, muttering something about somebody or whatever when they thought it wouldn't be heard and yet the words become public and there's a huge impact, the person's embarrassed, they have to apologize, and so on and so forth. So the higher your position in life, whatever, however you want to define higher, in other words, the, when you're in a position where people look up to you, perceive you as a leader, uh, or you know, someone to, to uh, uh, listen to or take note of, you have to be very, very careful about what you say because people will hang their hat on it and they will listen to it and they will read into it things that maybe you never intended, uh, even if you think no one's listening. And so I would even take that idea a little bit further and say that for each of us, in one area of our life or another, we might be considered to be a king. Maybe it's, uh, you know, one of the most perhaps important and frequent places is in the home with children. You know, if you're a parent, children look up to their parents and, and sometimes they place great importance on things that their parents say, even if those things were said in haste or under stress. And the same is true for business situations where other people may be watching way more closely than we think and taking you know, strong cues or drawing conclusions from things we say or how we operate when we don't think we're being watched or how we deal with other people. So I'll suggest that we can learn from this verse the importance of using our gift of speech wisely and how others, depending on their role, and depending on our role, may view what we say with much greater emphasis than we realize. And the more we're in a high position relative to someone else, the more important this becomes. And we can also learn that uh, the more that we are in a high position, the more opportunity we have to learn other viewpoints from people around us and make the best kind of judgment in a situation, whether that's a business situation or a parenting situation or uh, whatever it happens to be. Okay, any questions on this? Excellent, thank you. Okay, so let's go on to uh, chapter 16 and verse 11. And this verse reads, There is a scale and balances that God uses to measure justice, and his actions are stones in pouch. Very interesting uh, metaphor. There is a scale and balances that God uses to measure justice, and his actions are stones in pouch. 
So, what kind of questions pop up around that verse? Good evening, Prescott. Welcome. Uh, yes, Goliath. That's that's a good that's a good reference. Jim, his actions are how he weighs ours. That's good question. We'll have to define what's what's he using there. What are those scales and balances for, and and what are they, and how are they used? Uh, and Linda, how can stones be stones here? It doesn't. It seems very. It's it's very odd. What is? What, what's one half have to do with the other half? And and what's this verse teaching us all together? I mean, it sounds like. Uh, well, first of all, what's it saying? And then. If Proverbs is a practical book, you know, this sounds like some statement about God, but how does that help me in my everyday life? You know, and how, how are actions stones? Uh, or stones actions? So, a very, very cryptic verse. So Rabbi Moskowitz suggested like this. He said, God's measuring stick is exact. There's no mistaken measurement here. Now, according to the Rabbeinu Yonah, if a king is not just, or the king makes a mistake, you have to understand that the ultimate justice is in God's hands. So the verse is telling us that this is one more way that we don't have control over our lives. But even though it's out of your hands, you could have a question about, well, you know, where is God? If something happens that unjust, that's unjust, where is God in that situation? Or something that appears to be unjust. And Rabbi Moscow has suggested that a person has to have faith in the long run, that God is just. Okay, we're not proving that here in this verse, but we do have to have faith in that. We have to understand that ultimately there is justice in the world. We just don't necessarily know how it works. So the verse is saying that there are a lot of situations that we have no control over. And sometimes somebody else has control over us. And sometimes they don't want to be just. Or sometimes they may make a mistake. And in those kinds of situations, I may not have control. So I have to rely on the idea that God is just. Now, we know God has set up systems that we all live under. So we have to conclude that what appears to us to be an injustice will ultimately be straightened out through the laws of nature or through God's intervention. And as I understand this approach then, the stones in pouch is referring to the stone, stones used in the scales and balances. If you remember the, the way that, that scales work, uh, and if you think about the logo for justice in America, it shows a, a woman in a long uh, flowing gown with a blindfold uh, over her eyes, and she's holding a scale. And the scale has two equal halves. And the way that they would measure out, you know, a pound of potatoes 
was they would take a stone or a weight that um, they knew weighed exactly a pound. They would put it in one side and then they would fill up the other side with the potatoes until the scale was exactly balanced. So the stones in pouch is referring to the stones that would be used in the scales and balances that God uses to measure justice. And that God perfectly balances those scales in meeting out justice. So the first part of the verse tell, talks about how God measures justice with a scale and a balance. And the second part states that his actions are in accordance with that justice. Okay. And yes, Prescott, the stones, in my view, refer to the weights uh, that, that would be used in that scale. So that's all fine and good, but in terms of Proverbs being a practical book, how does that help me practically? And the way it does that is that it gives me a framework in which to think about situations where it seems like justice isn't happening. Sometimes the knowledge that a system exists and is operating properly in the long run can help me to deal with the situation that I'm in where things aren't going the way I think they ought to be going and where maybe there's nothing I can do and I have no control. I can simply accept this too is part of God's reality and I trust that God's justice uh, will be meted out in the long term and I don't know how that will happen but I can accept that reality because I know God created these systems the system of reality that I'm operating in and that God is just. We were discussing uh, the story of Jacob marrying Leah and Rachel uh, in Genesis recently and a point that came up in our discussion was we read that entire story from and we see the whole thing from beginning to end and we generally see it all at once and so it's like we see that story from the 30,000 foot level but Jacob and Leah and Rachel they didn't have that same knowledge they're going on moment by moment as the story unfolds chronologically over many, many years. I mean, you remember Jacob, you know, goes uh, to Laban and then he uh, loves Rachel and he works for her for seven years and then there's a switch at the marriage and he works for another seven years. And so, you know, at the very least, not counting all the time in the front end and the back end, uh, when he in the back end when he you know keeps working for Laban we're talking about a 14-year time period at least so their view of that story is very very different uh, they didn't necessarily know how it was going to turn out you know we kind of know but we have to remember they're on the ground living that one day at a time well that's the way we live in our own lives we encounter situations in life that are frustrating or they're painful and when we're right in the middle of them, it can be very, very hard. But if we take this verse to heart, we can remind ourselves that God is just and that justice will ultimately prevail. 
And we may not see it right away. In fact, we might not even see it in our lives, but it will happen. And that can help us get through the frustration and the pain and accept the situation we're in and, you know, roll with it. How many times have you heard someone say something like, you know, I got laid off from my job and it was really hard, but then that caused me to rethink my career direction and I decided to go down a different road and now I'm happier than I've ever been and that layoff was the best thing that ever happened to me and so on and so forth. So that person has gone through the on-the-ground reality, minute-by-minute experiencing all that, and it was uncomfortable. It's only after a period of time, sometimes years, sometimes decades, that they look back and they see a bigger picture and say, wow, that was really you know, an important turn in my life or an important experience to go through, even though in the midst of it, it was really uncomfortable. So we don't see the whole picture, but we can, by using this verse and what comes out of it, understand and know that God is just and that ultimately God's justice will prevail, and that can help us through the moments when life is difficult for us. Any questions on that verse or that idea? Thank you. Uh, we'll move on then to chapter 16 and verse 12. And this verse reads, Oh, you know, I wrote that wrong on the slide just a little bit. The way that Rabbi Moskowitz translated that was, It should be an abomination for kings to do evil because justice makes their throne firm, rather than it is an abomination. It should be an abomination for kings to do evil, because justice makes their throne firm. So what kinds of questions does that raise? So I'll ask the question, why should it be an abomination for kings to do evil? Okay, and yes, Jim, good. How does justice do that? How does justice make their throne firm? And, and what does firm mean anyway? Prescott, good point. People fear but don't trust evil kings. Okay, good. And Jim, is this merely a is this a merely practical concern? Good question. And uh, Lori and Terry, their throne is established through righteousness. Good. We'll take a look at at why I think why that why that works. And yes, Prescott, thanks. It's interesting that the rabbi. Uh, he uses the word should. Um, and Terry, yes, when the king does evil, others follow suit. Uh, and Prescott, yeah, it doesn't always seem to work that way, uh, that it should be an abomination. I assume you're continuing your, your thought there. Excellent, thank you. So, in terms of definitions, let's start with that. 
I'll suggest that a firm throne means that the government is stable and that it lasts. So there aren't constant upheavals. You don't have constant internal, you know, uh, people trying to take over the kingdom, whatever. The king has clear and solid control over the country. So Rabbi Moskowitz commented like this. He said, history doesn't seem to agree with this verse because there are leaders who are evil and they live their whole lives in power and sometimes even for generations. So how can the verse be reconciled with that? So he said like this. He said, God's justice works this way. If a nation is evil, but they still have a certain sense of reality, or they have leaders who can educate, educate the nation in reality, then God won't destroy the nation. God doesn't destroy a nation until they reach a point where the evil can't be undone. So God gives you a chance as long as there is hope for you to repent. So until there's a point of no return, there is some hope. Okay, so some evil kings may last a long time because there is some hope for return. And Jim, you've said they, they, they live in fear. I'm uh, not sure if you mean the kings or the people, but probably both do in that circumstance. Because the king, yeah, the kings live in fear um, that, you know, they're going to be overthrown. Kind of like, you know, mafia bosses and that sort of thing. Uh, they constantly have to, um, you know, uh, to pr protect themselves. Uh, Prescott, yes, Saddam Hussein. Um, and some of those thrones, Jim, good observation. They may last, but they're not firm. Okay, so an evil king can stick around for a while because there's some hope of return. And... You know, Linda, you've said, what does that say about uh, our leaders today? Well, the nations are still around, so I would suggest that indicates there is some hope. Um, because presumably, if there were none, God would destroy the nation. Now, we've discussed in other classes how evil brings down the government, although it may take a lot of time. We don't get consequences for our actions immediately. And that's a really good thing, because if we did, we'd probably all be dead. Uh, drinking too much alcohol, okay, is a good example. You can get away with it for a while before the health consequences start to manifest themselves. But if you do too much over too long a period of time, the consequences will catch up with you. There are a lot of things in this life that you can get away with that don't have consequences for quite a while. And similarly, generally, I'll suggest that's true with an evil king. Yes, Lori and Terry, Hashem gives us a chance to repent. The fact that we don't get consequences right away is an enormous gift from God because it gives us an opportunity to look at our actions to step back 
and say, hmm, you know, I don't think that's such a good idea. Maybe I ought to straighten that out. And we have an opportunity to do that before the consequences become fatal, generally speaking. So similarly, a king who makes evil decisions may sometimes get away with that for a long time. But the seeds are being sown for an eventual downfall because you can't operate in opposition to reality forever. There's a conflict going on when a king is operating in an evil way. And that conflict is eventually going to manifest itself one way or the other. It could take some time, and in some cases it could take generations. The king might be very adept at protecting himself. Uh, but sooner or later, there is going to be you know, a comeuppance. Uh, the, the effect of consequences and the effect of that conflict with reality is going to eventually show up. Now, when we accept that God's system is just, then it's possible to accept the pain of being in the middle of a difficult situation. So, for example, if a king is doing something unjust, okay, and maybe you're in, a, you're in a, a land where you have clearly an evil king. And you happen to be caught in the middle of it. And you are experiencing pain as a result of that. You can accept the pain by realizing that the system is just. You happen to be caught in one of the particulars of the system. But the overall system is just. And eventually that evil king is going to, uh, you know, face reality. You might even be, you know, a casualty in that, as some people have been. But if you can accept the wholeness of the system and recognize that the system is just, then you can accept what you're in the middle of. Why is it an abomination for kings to do evil? because it brings about their downfall. And it brings about the destruction of the kingdom. And although, again, that may, that may not happen right away, it is certain to happen eventually unless the king turns around and returns to justice. So, why then does justice make a throne firm? Because the people of the kingdom will trust the king and they will stand behind the king because they see that he is doing things for their benefit and for the system, not for his own personal benefit. When you recognize a benevolent king who's truly acting on, in the best interest of his subjects, not amassing a bunch of gold and silver and you know, gold-plated sink faucets and, and stuff like that, but is using his power to try to do the best for his kingdom. People recognize that and people will trust it. That makes the people want to stand by him and continue to have him in power. He would then be what I would describe as a benevolent king, a, a king whose first priority is to properly care for his subjects. So the people will recognize that they will stand by him, they will trust in him, and that will make his throne firm.
Okay. Any questions on this verse or any of these concepts? Okay. We'll move on then to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 13. And this verse reads, The desire of kings is righteous lips, and the king will love somebody who speaks upright. We have a number of verses in a row here talking about kings. The desire of kings is righteous lips, and the king will love somebody who speaks upright. So, what are the questions here? Okay, Lori and Terry, thank you. Who is upright? Yeah. And what are righteous lips? And what's the difference? I mean, is King Solomon just sort of repeating himself? Or is there some difference that he's trying to point out? Because at first glance, these things seem to be pretty close. Um, okay, Jim, you've asked, does this mean a king will shun flattery? Ah, good point. Good question. Okay. Uh, Prescott, you're suggesting this is about advisors. Okay, could be. Um, and Terry, you're suggesting uh, that he would want honest words as opposed to yes men. Excellent. Good questions. Uh, and why does a king love somebody who speaks upright once we figure out what that is? So Rabbi Moskowitz suggested that this is a continuation of what has come before in the verses preceding it. The king wants people to talk with him with righteousness and clarity. Uh, and it would seem that this would make it possible for him to rule effectively. Okay, and let me pause. Uh, Prescott, you're quoting 1 Kings 22.8. Uh, and the king of Israel answered, Jehoshaphat, uh, there is one more man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good for me, but only misfortune, uh, Micaiah son of Amaiah. Uh, but King Jehoshaphat said, don't say that, your majesty. Yes, so good, good reference. Um, if I recall that particular spot in 1 Kings, um, there are a whole bunch of advisors around uh, the king who are uh, basically yes men. And uh, yet he wants to hear all sides uh, of the story. So let's let's expand on these ideas. Kings like to hear things that are honest and truthful and that reflect integrity because it makes it easier for them to rule and to sort out what's really going on in a situation. So righteous lips would seem to be exactly that. When people come before the king they speak righteously, and the king receives true and correct information. I mean, assuming the king really, you know, wants to rule properly and wants to see the truth, he certainly wants people to tell him, you know, what's really going on so he can get the whole picture and make the best possible decision that he can. I mean, there's no difference than the president of a company. 
you know, wants people to come and tell him, what's really going on in the market? Are our products really selling? What are the problems? What are the flaws? How's our service? He doesn't want people to say, oh, yeah, 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 it's all fine. He wants to tell them what's really going on so that he can figure out what needs to be fixed, you know, what kinds of steps need to be taken. So the king wants people to come and speak to him righteously. So then what's the difference between someone who speaks righteously in the first half of the verse and someone who speaks upright in the second half of the verse? And I'd like to suggest two interpretations uh, that we can take on that. Um, and Jim, you've asked the question, don't we see that often a leader will ignore the information that doesn't match his politics? That is a danger. Okay, we're assuming here that the king wants to see what's clearly happening. If he's a leader who has an agenda and only wants to hear from the people who have supporting information from his agenda, then he'll essentially be living in a, uh, you know, a slight fantasy and be headed down a path and not see obstacles or things that could um, come in and you know, uh, hit him from the side or uh, pitfalls that he's, he's not keeping an eye out for. So a true leader, a real king, is going to want all sides of the issue, even if he doesn't like hearing them. And I would suggest that, you know, if we take a king as a microcosm of our own lives, the same is true for us. You know, if all I want is for people to come tell me all the things that, you know, I'm doing well or that will make me feel good, then I'm not going to get benefit of the people who are going to come along and say, uh, excuse me, Doug, but, you know, you've also been making some big boo-boos here and they're going to come to bite you if you don't do something about them. So a leader, a true leader, has got to want to hear all sides of the issue and be more interested in seeing the truth than in holding his own agenda or his own position. Uh, that takes a certain degree of intellectual honesty. And we see that on a personal level as much as we see that on a political level or a company level or the level of a king. There has to be a level of intellectual honesty and a desire to see what's really going on more than, you know, my own prejudices. So, very good point. A leader has got to want that. Uh, and I think we do often see that leaders uh, sometimes and maybe more often than not uh, will tend to ignore information that doesn't match their politics or their agenda or what they, you know, happen to want. Uh, so that's, that's an important consideration. So what about this difference between righteous lips, somebody who speaks righteously, and someone who speaks upright? Let me give you two interpretations. In the first interpretation, the first half of the verse is talking about, the, about what the king wants. He wants people who speaks righteously. That's his desire. And it makes, as we talked about, it makes his life easier, makes it possible for him to rule more effectively. The second half is talking about his reaction to someone who actually does that, who actually does speak righteously to him. He loves that person. So the first half is talking about his overall desire. The second half is talking about how he reacts to someone who fulfills that desire. 
So in this interpretation, the phrase, somebody who speaks upright, is the actual embodiment of the king's desire for righteous lips. So it's somebody who actually does what the king wants. And the king loves him for that. Okay? So that's the first interpretation. Second interpretation, and this follows the Malbum, is there's a difference between righteous lips and someone who speaks upright. And this explains why there's a difference in the first half between desire and in the second half where the king loves someone. The Malbum is, is seeing those as a distinction. The Malbum suggests that righteous lips in the first half refers to strict justice in civil life. So this is like someone who just follows the letter of the law. Okay, that's it. But he suggests that the second half is referring to someone with higher personal integrity than that, who goes beyond the strict demands of the law and approaches things with a straightforward and honest mind. In other words, not someone who just does, you know, exactly what they're supposed to, but someone who is doing that but is also operating uh, with, a, with a proper mindset. So two different possible interpretations of why those are uh, a little bit different. Okay, any questions on those interpretations or that verse? Jim, you've asked the question, why does Solomon want us to know that? I would, that's a great question. I would presume it is so that we will have more information about how to operate with a king or a leader and to understand what the king's reaction will be to someone like that. So I think it's, I would presume it is just as, as are several of these verses, they're giving us information about dealing with a king. Because we all have to do that, not necessarily the king like, uh, you know, a king of an entire land, but we deal with leaders in certain, you know, in various positions. We may deal with a leader in business, or we may deal with a leader in the community, or we may deal with a leader, you know, in the entire country. And so I would presume the verse is teaching us more information about the way to deal with a leader uh, and what the, the responses will be so that we will understand the nature of kingship and know how best to relate to it. Does that help? Okay, good. Thank you. It's a great question. Any other questions? Okay. Uh, I think we have time for one more. So let's move on to chapter 16 and verse 14. <clears throat> and this one reads, The anger of the king is a messenger of death, and a wise man knows how to appease him. The anger of the king is a messenger of death, and a wise man knows how to appease him. So what are the questions on that verse? So, Jim, how does a wise man appease him? Very good. <clears throat> Very good. 
how does a wise man appease him? Other questions? <laughs> Jim, no, I don't, I don't think it shows you're not wise. I think the asking of the questions is the beginning of the, uh, the wisdom process. So, uh, Linda, you've asked what kind of death? Good question. What does that mean, a messenger of death? What's that about? And I would, I would ask, why is the anger of the king a messenger of death? And as Linda, you've suggested, is the messenger of death a concept or is that a person? And then in the second half, it says, a wise man knows how to appease him. Well, who's the him? In other words, who is a wise man appease him, appeasing? And how does a wise man know how to appease him? Okay, and Prescott, you've suggested a good advisor keeps the king from getting angry by what he says. That could be. Uh, a good advisor would know probably how best to uh, relate a piece of information to the king, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, and at the same time, he would want to be able to tell the king what the truth is. Uh, now, Jim, you've suggested the king seems to be angry already, or else he wouldn't need to pacify him. Okay, good point. And Prescott, yes, he knows, whoever the he is, that the king has great power. Uh, certainly the wise man knows that. So let's see if we can unravel some ideas here. Why is the anger of the king a messenger of death? Well, one interpretation would be, if the king is angry with you, he can have you killed. I mean, that's probably the, perhaps the first and most straightforward interpretation of that. And even if he doesn't have you killed, you don't want to have a king angry at you because it will likely severely limit your options and it can put you in continuous jeopardy. I mean, imagine living in a land where there's, where there's a king who has complete unlimited power and he's mad at you. Would not be a good way to live. I mean, you would always kind of wonder, uh, you know, what's going on. And, and, you know, am, am I in danger today? You know, what if he has a flare-up today? Uh, what about this afternoon? Uh, yeah, Lori and Terry, good point. No job, no place to live, no place to hide. You can't get out of the country. He knows where you are. Uh, not a good place to be. Now, the term messenger of death uh, can be, you know, metaphorical. Although in a real kingdom it could be literal. Uh, you know, meaning that you'll be killed. But you don't want to do something that's going to make the king angry because, yes, Lorian Terry, he controls everything. Now, since a messenger of death, which would be, if taken literally, would be an executioner, since that executioner is on orders from the king to kill you, it would seem that there would be nothing you can do to stop him. I mean, once the king gives the order to the executioner uh, to, 
to uh, kill you, I'll submit that there's not a lot you can do to stop that. So based on that, I will submit to you that the him in the second half is the king. Okay, and we'll look at another interpretation of him in a moment. But uh, when it says a wise man knows how to appease him, I'm going to say it's not appeasing the messenger of death, it's appeasing the king. And Laurie and Terry, you're, you've mentioned your translation has um, angels of death um, and that, you know, they could appear at any time. Uh, yeah, in, in that case, uh, I don't know whether the Hebrew actually uses the word angels or whether that translation includes within it an interpretation of the verse itself. So I'm going on the basis of the way that Rabbi Moskowitz uh, translated this particular verse. Uh, so, and, and angels of death could be, uh, you know, literally a messenger of death by a king. It could be taken in uh, a way if you assume the king is God. But I'm taking the literal translation of the king as a practical king that we would have to, to uh, deal with uh, in, in the world. So, then the wise man knows how to appease the king. That is, he knows how to appease his anger before he gets to the point of issuing a decree that you should be killed. And how does a wise man do that? I'll suggest because he studies and learns the psychology of people. And and knows the politics of the king, because that too is a part of reality. And he's careful to operate in a way that will not bring about the wrath of the king. And this is not dishonest, and it's not duplicitous, but rather it's a careful analysis of the situation in order to figure out how best to work within the political reality of the king, the situation, the king's personality, the environment, and so forth. Once upon a time, I had, uh, I was in a business situation, and I had a person working for me, and she was involved in a particular project that a number of people were involved in, and the project had missed a deadline. And she came to me, and she was you know, a, a little bit agitated about it. And she said, we have to tell the department head, you know, we, who was my boss. We have to go tell him, uh, you know, we've, we've missed this deadline. And I knew the department head, and I knew how he would react if we walked in and said, we've missed a deadline. And so I asked her for more details. I said, you know, like, okay, have we solved the problem? Yeah. Are we back on track? Yeah. Are we going to still complete the work on time? Yeah. Okay. So I went into the department head and I said, I want to give you an update on this project. You know, we're scheduled to have it done on time. Uh, or, or rather, I said, you know, I think something like, you know, this is... We've done this piece and we've done this piece. We did miss a deadline on this piece, but we've recovered the time and we're back on track 
and everything's scheduled to be done as planned. Now I gave essentially the same information that she would have given, but I did it in a way that I knew was pretty sure would not agitate him. And he kind of considered it to be, you know, pretty much, I think, a non-event. And we moved on. And everything was fine. So you have to know the person that you're approaching and something about their psychology and how they will react and the best way to try to present a piece of information to them so they will be able to hear it and receive it and not immediately react negatively to it. Okay, if you recall in the story of Joseph and his brothers, um, uh, when they go back and uh, their father learns that um, Benjamin is being held, um, Reuben right away says, you know, uh, offers a solution right away. But Judah kind of waits and doesn't say anything because he knows his dad well, and he waits till later. And then he proposes a solution when he knows his father will be in a position to be able to hear it. So the verse is teaching us uh, that one of the reasons for wisdom is very practical because the anger of the king is like death. And previous verses have talked about the king. This verse talks about dealing with the king. Okay, any questions on, on that interpretation? Okay, let me give one other. There is another interpretation of the hymn in the second half that yields a, a different result. And that is that the hymn could be referring to the anger of the king. And the wise man may be the wise side of the king himself. So in that interpretation, the anger of the king is a messenger of death for the king in two ways. First, if he's angry a lot, the people may rebel and try to overthrow him or assassinate him or whatever. I mean, they don't want to be around an angry guy. And second, which and the anger will probably also cause him to make some bad decisions, and they may see that and view it and say, oh, we don't want this guy around. Second, in addition to that, the anger shortens the life of the king as it does with just about anyone, as we've discussed in some other verses. So, in this interpretation, the wise part of the king knows how to appease his own anger, so he's able to step outside, even when he's angry, he's able to step outside of himself enough to get in control of his anger and thus avoid making bad decisions and avoid the negative impact that anger can have on himself personally, and so he avoids the messenger of death himself. Okay, any questions or comments on that interpretation? Okay, in that case, we will stop for the evening. Uh, thank you all so much for joining, and I hope you can all join next week, and uh, my best wishes to you all for uh, a good week and a great Hanukkah celebration.